morning. Great to be with you all. Uh, in view of the 46 of you who have joined in the last year, you may not know me or visiting this morning. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors at the East Campus, but it's a privilege to get to be with you. Uh, we're going to be in 2 Kings for a good portion, at least the, the first half of the sermon anyway, chapters 22 and 23. Rather than read both chapters, um, I think we'll just call out some spots as we walk through it here. 2 Kings 22 and 23, though, you can turn if you want to follow along. Uh, Bob has just prayed, but I'll pray one more time. Father, speak to us from your word. This is, this is the Sunday we remember Jesus Christ, not just your cross, not just the empty tomb, but we remember where you are right this very moment, on the throne, on the throne at the right hand of your Father, ruling and reigning, and we ask King Jesus, would you be praised and honored and glorified in our midst and in our hearts and with our lives, and would you speak, Spirit, and open our eyes to see pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Baseball is a confusing sport. You got any amens in there at all? Anybody? Yes? No? Maybe? I love baseball. It goes back to the days of Little League as a kid. For me, it goes back to the days, uh, the, the grand days of wiffle ball in the front yard with my older brothers. I love baseball. But yes, at times it can be a confusing sport. Take, for example, my Kansas City Royals. Uh, if you know anything about me in baseball, you know I love the Kansas City Royals. Eric, my fellow co-pastor, he's a Detroit Tigers fan. That's bad. Those don't go together. Doug is a Cardinals fan. Those don't go together at all. But anyway, uh, just baseball this season, just a few short weeks ago, my Royals were 16 and 9, 16 wins, 9 losses. We were the best team in baseball. We were ahead of the Dodgers and everybody else. Best team in baseball, 16 and 9. Life was great. Two short weeks later, we've, we've lost, as of a couple days ago, 11 straight games and dropped to the bottom of our division. The, the capstone of those 16 and 9, we swept the Detroit Tigers all three games, and it was just so nice to send a little small text to Eric like, hey, you paying attention to the scores, you know, are you seeing this? And the capstone of our 11-game losing streak, yeah, his Detroit Tigers came right back and swept us. Baseball is a confusing game. One of my favorite viral videos, though, uh, it came out five or six years ago, but it seems it gets recycled every baseball season and it kicks back up. Uh, it's this German guy on YouTube. Interesting introduction, right? He's an actor, he's a musician, I think he's a DJ. But uh, this German guy, this, this three-minute video made the rounds on the internet, and it's hysterical. I, I'm not going to play it for you today. But uh, to, to try to quote his broken English and things like that, uh, the name of the video is Baseball, You Confusion Me. That's the name of the YouTube video. So you can already sense kind of the level of his English as he's making this video. But he starts off, German accent, broken English, I am watching now a little bit of your baseball here in America. And he, he goes, this game is the most confused game of that I am knowing. And, and that's how he starts off this video. It's great. And he goes into all kinds of things. He, he compares it to 
football for him or soccer for us. And he's like, you kick ball, there's a net, you get a point, boom, game. That's easy, you know. And so he's off on that train of comparing it to, to soccer. That's easy. But he shifts gears to baseball. And he's like, you got these pillows in the dirt. <laughs> and then you got some grass. And, and you got guys lined up everywhere. But you got these pillows in the dirt. Uh, and there's a guy on one pillow in the middle, and he's got a ball, and there's a stick guy, and he's throwing the ball to the stick guy, and he's looking at another guy who's crouching down, and they shake their head, yeah, no, yeah, and they're giving signs and all this. He's just trying to figure out and make sense what in the world is going on. Don't look it up now, baseball, you confusion me, but... If you like baseball at all, yes, when church is done later on, go, go look it up. It's hysterical. I mean, he gets into, and sometimes they steal the pillows, uh, and sometimes they get hit by a ball, and then they want to fight. Uh, and sometimes if you hit the ball really far, you get to run all the way around the pillows, and the teams go back and forth. They're trading places. He, he, can't, he, does, he can't come up with the word dugout at all, so he's like, you got these guys in the trench, and they just spit all the time. They're spitting, spit, spit, and he's just going on and on, trying to make sense of baseball. I think my favorite moment is he's like, in the middle of all these trading, they, the teams trade places nine times, but after the seventh time, wait, time out, everybody stands up and sings a song about popcorn. <laughs> What's going on? Baseball can be a confusing game. The point of all of that is 2 Kings 22 and 23. This, for me, is one of the most confusing passages in the whole Bible. Uh, if you know it, or if you've turned there, you may have seen a heading or something like that. But we're dealing with King Josiah of Judah and, and Jerusalem. Uh, you may know of King Josiah, the, the guy who comes to power uh, his father dies, his father reigns for two years, but he comes to power. He, he's made king at the young age of eight years old, right? He's made king in Jerusalem. Uh, these are not good days for Jerusalem. Uh, Assyria has been in power for hundreds of years, but Babylon is knocking on the doorstep and coming. Josiah's own grandfather, Manasseh, was one of the worst kings they've ever had. It was bad under Manasseh. It was so bad that we're not just worrying about idols and the high places, you know, off on the hills outside the city and things like that. Under Manasseh, it was so bad, we're taking those idols and we're putting them in the very temple themselves. Baal, Asherah, temple prostitutes. Uh, Manasseh is known as the king who sacrifices his own son to false gods. It's really bad under Manasseh. So that's what's going on here uh, in these days. And Josiah, as an eight-year-old, becomes king in Jerusalem over Judah. Uh, before we get more into his stories, though, I want to set it up just, just this way. God had been teaching them uh, in their history, throughout these days leading up to this time period, God had been teaching them to look for a king. Look for a king. 
And, and that's an interesting thing to juxtapose with like 1 Samuel 8, where we know they reject Samuel. They don't want him as a leader anymore. They say, give us a king. Give us a king like all the nations have. Give us a king who will fight and win battles. And we know Samuel's not pleased. We know God's not pleased. He ultimately sees this as a rejection of God himself for a human king. So we've got that and we know about that. And yet at the very same time, the whole way through the story, even in view of this sin and God knowing where they were going to go in their hearts with this, God had been preparing them to look for a king. Look for a king. You can go all the way back to Jacob and his 12 sons in Genesis 49, and he blesses one of those sons, Judah, which doesn't really make sense because he's not a great son. He's not an a amazing character in any of these Stories, but as he's blessing his son Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah. To him will be the obedience of the peoples. The ruling staff will never depart from between his feet. Some ruler, some king is coming from Judah all the way back in Genesis. Or you could go to crazy Balaam. Do you know, do you remember him at all in Numbers? Balaam is this weird prophet, diviner guy, not a great fellow. Uh, he, he likes to prophesy for money, and, and some of the kings who are opposed to Israel come to him, and they want him to curse Israel, and there's all kinds of fun run-ins on this journey for Balaam, like his talking donkey, for example. Are you tracking with me? Do you remember all this? Yes. Uh, Balaam, this crazy guy, and, and it turns out he can't curse Israel. All he can do is bless Israel time and time again, because God will only let him say what he wants him to say. And a star, he says, shall come forth from Jacob. A scepter shall rise from Israel. All the way back to the Old Covenant itself, Deuteronomy 17, there's provisions in the law for a king. And this is the kind of king you want, Deuteronomy 17 will say. You want a king who's going to write his own copy of the law and have it read all the time and lead you as a nation in following the law. Uh, you can go to Judges. Uh, and, and there in Judges, we hear this familiar refrain, there was no king in Israel, and every man did what was right in his own eyes. But in that process of Judges, which it's this awful downward spiral as a book, uh, it's horrendous what we see going on in this nation. But God is again teaching them to cry out for a deliverer. Again, and again, and again. And God in his grace raises up a judge, even though their repentance isn't really real. And he raises up a judge who delivers them and saves them. And, and we do that process all over the place. We see it especially in King David, Josiah's great forefather. Uh, and we see it when David, when he finally becomes king over all Israel, and he's conquered many enemies, uh, he wants to build God a house, and God says, no, David, uh, I'm, I'm fine, but I'm going to build you a house, and I will establish the throne of this seed, this descendant of yours, David, who's coming. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever, your house your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. He's teaching them again and again and again. Look for a king. 
watch for the king that I am sending. If that wasn't even enough, and it's a lot, if you go back just a few generations before Josiah, we, we've got his father Ammon, we've got his grandfather Manasseh, this horrible king. If we go to his great-grandfather, though, King Hezekiah, one of the best kings they've ever had. Uh, in the days of King Hezekiah, there's a prophet among them by the name of Isaiah. Yes, that Isaiah, the Isaiah with, we have this letter of his. And in the days of Hezekiah, Isaiah comes forward uh, and he advises Hezekiah multiple times when they're surrounded by 185,000. He advises him when Hezekiah is struck in mortally ill, Isaiah keeps coming to the forefront. Uh, but Isaiah gave many, many other prophecies as well, not just all directly related to Hezekiah and helping him. But Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah chapter 9, one of his best-known prophecies. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be, Isaiah says, and sees no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Look for the king. Look for the king. Look for the king. And even in Isaiah's case, just a few generations before Josiah, look for a child. Look for a child. And so then when we get to 2 Kings 22, it's not just, oh, this poor guy who's an eight-year-old who's made a king. I hope he's got good advisors. No, we perk up. We should perk up. When we read these words, Josiah was eight years old when he became he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jedidah, the daughter of Adiah of Bozkah. He did right in the sight of the Lord and walked in all the way of his father David, nor did he turn aside to the right or to the left. As we're reading through the story of redemption, the story of the Old Testament, wait a minute. King, a child, an eight-year-old, who does right who doesn't turn to the right or to the left. Uh, we, we should perk up as we hear these things. And, and as we follow the story of Josiah, it only gets better and better. We've got this Second Kings account in 22 and 23. Uh, we get more in Chronicles. We hear from the chronicler that at the age of 16, he began to seek God of his father, David. Uh, four years after that, he begins to purge Judah of idols. And 18 years later, where we go here in verse 3 of 22, uh, he is uh, reforming the temple because it's become a mess under his grandfather, Manasseh. All of the idols, foreign gods, prostitutes, and everything else. Josiah then, as they're reforming this temple, 
this incredible thing happens, right? And that's there in 22, verse 8. Then Hilkiah the high priest said to Shaphan the scribe, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And our first reaction is, wait, we lost the book of the law? What, what happened? Where did it go? Uh, if it's Manasseh and his reign, Manasseh had a really, really long reign of 55 years. And this is in 18 years into this is 18 years into Josiah's reign, so it could be like 75 years we're talking about where maybe the book of the law has been lost, gone. And again, we see in, in Josiah the reaction we want that we're looking for. Verse 10, moreover, Shaphan the scribe told the king, saying, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it in the presence of the king. And when the king heard the words of the book of the law, he tore his clothes. And he immediately sends off to inquire, what, what does God want from me? What does God want from us? We've lost the law and we've found it again. Uh, and, and you move forward into chapters 23. And again, it's, it's the responses we want. Josiah chapter 23, he gathers everyone to Judah and Jerusalem from the great to the small, and he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which was found in the house of the Lord. The king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to carry out the words of this covenant that were written in this book. And all the people entered into the covenant. Whoa. He renews this covenant completely. He calls the whole nation in, and they go after it. And he cleans house. Literally, he cleans house. He cleans the temple of the Lord out. And it's, it's hard to listen to all the stuff that he has to clean out uh, from the temple. That's how bad it's gotten. Judah in these days, it's altar after altar after altar. And he doesn't stop with the temple. He goes throughout the land, defiling temples and altars to false gods, removing completely the high places. He doesn't just stop in Judah. He goes northward into Israel. They, they've been separated to the ten tribes who, who went north. And he goes after their idols. They've already been conquered and shipped off to Assyria, and he's still making good on every word of this. I'm not just worried about Judah. I'm going everywhere. And we're getting rid of every single idol and altar we can find, and we're defiling those things, and we're burning the bones of their priests. He goes after it. And they renew the Passover. They haven't had a Passover like this since the days of the judges we see in, in 22. There we, we get the Passover going again. Just hear some of the words kind of summing up Josiah and his reign. Moreover, Josiah removed the mediums, spiritists, the teraphim, the idols, and all the abominations that were seen in the land of Judah and Jerusalem. 
that he might confirm the words of the law which were written in the book that Hilkiah the priest found in the house of the Lord. Before him, there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his might. You should recognize those three words. It's right out of Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, right? Love the Lord your God, all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. That's Josiah. There was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart, with all his soul, with all his might, according to all the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after him. This king is as good as it's ever gotten, even better than David himself, Josiah. And if you keep reading, and we skip down to verse 28, here's where I get confused. Now the rest of the acts of Josiah and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? In his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates, and King Josiah went to meet him, and when Pharaoh Necho saw him, he killed him at Megiddo. His servants drove his body in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. Then the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in place of his father. Wait, what? We just went from the highest of highs to not even Assyria, not even Babylon, like Pharaoh Nikos riding up to Assyria in the fields of Megiddo. He's dead and he's gone. And Jeremiah the prophet is writing laments about him. And all, put yourself in their shoes. I don't know. We, we don't have concrete evidence that maybe they're thinking this guy is the one. But again, certainly as we're reading through, we should be asking ourselves, is Josiah the one? And it was as good under him as it had ever been. And the next thing you know, he's gone. And he's done. And it only goes downhill from there. Because now they're paying tribute to Egypt uh, and his son Jehoahaz is, he, I think he reigns for like three months before Nico takes him prisoner and we put another son in place and he rules for a little while and next thing you know Nebuchadnezzar comes in from Babylon and he conquers and he takes that son off to Babylon and, and it's all done pretty soon. All Judah, except the poorest in the land, are taken off into captivity. The temple is destroyed Jerusalem is laid waste, and it's all come crashing down. What? Like the German guy with baseball. Huh? I'm so confused. And there's, there's answers for this, obviously. Uh, the Bible gives us answers. Even as Josiah seeks the Lord, the message he's given is, is it's, bottom line, it, it's too late for Judah. They're so evil. They're so far gone and so far beyond under your grandfather, Manasseh, that even only Josiah, as he seeks the Lord, is only promised a short reprieve. I'm not going to bring the judgment that I'm bringing in your days. 
but it's coming. So, so there's that piece of this equation here as far as an answer. Uh, there's the piece of just Josiah himself falling short. If you go to the Chronicles account, we don't get the details here. The, it's like this guy who's writing Kings is like, I don't, I don't know. Let's just throw a few verses in here and wrap that story up. But in Chronicles, we see he disobeys the word of the Lord from Pharaoh himself. So he disobeys. He heads into a battle that he should not have headed into, and it costs him his life. Uh, and that seems to be, if we're reading through the story, that seems to be the way of the whole old covenant. It always seems to fall short. From Moses, the great Moses, the mediator of the old covenant between God and Israel, he strikes a rock and he doesn't go into the promised land. Or Joshua, the great leader, who takes them into the promised land, and they don't kick out everybody. And they fall short again. And then we turn to Judges and go, it's a train wreck. It's a, it's a mess soon. Uh, to King David himself, the king after God's own heart in Bathsheba, and the sword he's promised will never leave your family as a result. It seems to fall short again and again and again and again. It falls short with King Josiah, maybe the best of them all. And so what's the message? Keep looking for the king. Keep watching waiting for the king. It was so good, but it, it wasn't Josiah. Even he fell short. Keep looking. And if you know the story, <clears throat> they come back from captivity. They rebuild temples. They rebuild walls. But it's not the utopia that's pictured. Keep waiting. Keep looking. And then there's 400 years of absolute silence from God. But then after 400 years of quiet, of hearing nothing, an angel shows up to a commoner named Mary, a young girl. And the angel says to her, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will have no end. Praise God. That day comes after 400 years of waiting. And we see in Jesus' ministry, we see him healing the lame and the blind. We see him rebuking storms, walking on water. We see him casting out demons, healing lepers. And what's his message sprinkled in? That if I'm here and I'm doing these things among you, be sure the kingdom of God is in your midst. The king is here. And he goes into Jerusalem 
on a donkey in fulfillment of prophecy, and the people cry out and shout, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And yet again, short few days later, it all comes crashing down. Or does it? Certainly in the minds of his followers, and his disciples, it's all come crashing down. And here we are again in this moment of, what? what? What's going on? What are you doing, Lord? He had something even better. Those disciples on that road to Emmaus after his death, we, we had such high hopes. We thought he was the one who would restore Israel But on the third day, the angels return, and Jesus appears to Mary and some women and, and to Peter and then the 12, uh, and over a period of 40 days of resurrected life here, he appears at one time to a period of over 500 of them. He shows himself again and again and again, and, and they touch his hands and his side, and they eat fish with him, and they talk again about the kingdom of God, Acts 1, and he's teaching them, and he's opening their minds to see all these things that were going on. And then after 40 days, he takes them to a mountain, and he's there with his disciples one last time, giving them like final, final words. And the craziest thing happens. As he's talking to them, he's lifted up into the sky. And he starts ascending up to heaven, and they're watching this, like, what is going on? And he disappears into a cloud, and angels show up to rebuke them. What's wrong with you guys? Why are you staring up there? And I gotta think Peter's ready. Like, I, I got some stuff. Like, you're, you're, he just went up there in front of my eyes, floated up to heaven, and you're rebuking me that I'm, what's going on? I don't know that for sure, but Peter's easy to pick on. Over time, they got it. He opened their minds to see the story. He, he taught some of them himself in these days how to read the Bible and how it all pointed to him. And Jacob's blessing came to mind and crazy Balaam's prophecy came to mind and Daniel's vision after four kings and four kingdoms of one ascending up to heaven with the clouds. One like a son of man was coming and he came up to the ancient of days and was presented before him and to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language which might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed, unlike Greece, Rome, Syria, Babylon. And I read Psalm 110 
sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And they were reminded of Isaiah's prophecy and David's covenant. And they read in Jeremiah, uh, speaking at the end of the, the downfall of David's kingly line in Jerusalem, that the story is not over. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up from David a righteous branch, and he will reign as king and act wisely and do justice and righteousness in the land. And in his days, Judah will be safe. They put these things together, and they heard Jesus' words to them on that mountain, all authority. How much authority? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. And he goes up to take the throne of that authority. And they preached it. Peter in Acts 2. Uh, when he was raised, he's been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he's poured forth this which you both see and hear. That's, that's Pentecost, that's next week. Sorry, shouldn't have gone there. But we read it in Philippians 2, Paul. For this reason, because he humbled himself. So here's the difference between his death and Josiah's death. Josiah's death was ill-advised and not seeking the Lord, and disobedient. No, not, not Jesus's. He did it fully knowing what was going on. He did it completely obedient to the last jot and tittle of the law, and, and to his father he fulfilled every bit of it. For this reason, because he humbled himself, even becoming obedient unto death and death on the cross, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow, and every tongue who are of, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, Ascension Sunday. Today, we're not looking for the king anymore because we've seen him. Jesus of Nazareth, 2,000 years ago, dead on a cross, a, a perfect, innocent lamb, risen from the empty tomb, and now sitting on the throne of the universe. The king has come. The king has his throne. And he's conquering every last one of his enemies. He's not passive. He's ruling. He's reigning. He's building his kingdom, which will not ever be destroyed. It's going to the ends of the earth. He's there. Can you see that today? We need, in these days, we need a vision of our king. And yes, we need a vision of our king crucified. But yes, we need a vision of our king who can't be moved off of that throne. 
Satan cannot touch him. The, the crazy events of, of this world for the last year or two or however long, he has not moved one inch from his rightful seat. Everything going on in our church, he's on the throne. None of it has changed that for an instant. He's king. Can you see him there today? I'm going to close from Hebrews 12. Maybe Hebrews 11 and maybe Hebrews 10 too. Don't hear that word close too. Hebrews 12, 1. Familiar passage. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, and he's just finished the hall of faith, right? All these others have gone before. And the pattern with them is even, it's this pattern you could say of, they didn't get to see every one of his promises fulfilled. Abraham never got the land. But he welcomed it from a distance. He saw it from far off. He lived as an exile and even a stranger in this land, intense as he went. All these guys, Abraham, Moses, in general, things were hard. They didn't always see the promises. They were still far off. But their testimony is he is faithful. By faith, by faith, by faith, they looked to him. And they were delivered again and again and again. By faith. Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us lay aside every encumbrance. kids had a track meet last week, and it was freezing cold, and this track meet is kindergarten up to sixth graders, and you can tell all the moms of the kindergartners especially had bundled them up with like four coats and winter hats and gloves, and they're all running around the track, oh, and I just wanted to be like, just, I'm coaching this track thing, which is ludicrous because I hate running, but uh, <laughs> all I wanted to do was just pull off all the light, get off the encumbrances so they can run. Let them run. But it was freezing cold and the moms won. <laughs> Let us lay aside every encumbrance, anything slowing us down, anything keeping us from continuing to the end of the race and enduring. Let us lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set out before us. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And how do we do it? Fixing our eyes on 
Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. I, I do it fixing my eyes on him saying, he's the only reason I've got faith because he gave it to me and he's the one who's going to see me through because he's going to finish this, right? The author and the perfecter of our faith. I fix my eyes on him who for the joy set before him endured the cross. I tend to focus on the cross here as I read this. But there's another side. Who for the joy before him. How did he endure? He endured knowing I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to trust my father. And I'm going to keep going in this race. And at the end of the race, my reward is coming. And my throne is coming. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That's where he is. The cross, yes. The tomb, yes. But today, for God's people, we need to see him having sat down on the throne. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. The number one thing the Hebrew writer is writing about is these believers who he's writing to are being tempted, they're being harassed, they're being persecuted, they're going through awful things. And he's writing again and again and again saying to them, don't give up. By faith, endure to the end with your eyes fixed on Jesus, and he will see his people through. That's the message of Hebrews 10. Let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. So we come because of Jesus' shed blood and what it's done for us. We come, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. He's on the throne. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. A few verses later, he says, therefore, do not throw away your confidence which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Brothers and sisters, fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't lose sight of him. He is faithful. He reigns and rules. Nothing has changed that for one minute. Fix your eyes on him. Would you pray with me? Father, the world has been watching and waiting and longing for centuries and millennia for your king. And praise you, Father, you sent that king. You gave freely your only son. And so we look to him and we ask, help us, Lord. May we trust him. 
may we fix our eyes on him. Would you give us hope that does not waver? Would you grant us endurance? Would you help us to throw off sin, to love one another, all because our King Jesus is on the throne? We pray it, not just for our good, but we pray it, King Jesus, for your glory, for you are